So let's go ahead and pray. We have people in our church who are hurting. We have people in our church who are um, struggling. And we have people in our church who so need the Holy Spirit to come and bind up their hearts. So would you pray with me about these things? God, we lift up um, those who are, are struggling right now. And God, who maybe struggle because of their flesh or struggle because of hurt that they've experienced or are experiencing now. And Jesus, we ask you would just accept them, just draw them close to you with a big hug and, and hold them close and let them know, Jesus, that you love them, that you have a call upon their life, And no matter what they do to get away from it, Jesus, you are going to pursue them and you are going to lovingly draw them with those cords of love that the the word tells us about. And Jesus, I, I pray for all of us in here, Lord, that our hearts would be turned towards you and God, that we would put our hope and our trust completely in you. And I pray that with the topic that we're talking about today, Lord, that it would it would revolutionize the way we think about your church the way we think about the people in this building and the people in other buildings. And Jesus, we pray that all glory and honor go straight to you. Lord, that if it were possible that I could just disappear and we could hear your spirit preach us a sermon. And so, Lord, that's what we ask for, that your Holy Spirit would guide my words, that your Holy Spirit would use the word of God your very words, Lord, to pierce into our hearts. And we pray this all with expectation and trust and absolute assurity that it will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Today's Bible study is called Unity in the Body. And uh, we've been going through this... uh, kind of outline of the book of Ephesians, and there's this picture that I'm going to kind of show to you each week, and it's a picture form of the book of Ephesians. And, and you have the left side, which is the first half of Ephesians, the, the doctrinal section, and then the right side is the practical section on the right side, and each of those are divided into seven sections, which the Word of God is kind of amazing like that, and so it's divided into seven amazing, perfect sections, and each of the sections has three grapes in this picture, and those three things have been three um, truths that are in each of those seven sections. And so the first one we looked at was the threefold charter, the, what God willed, what the, what the Son did, and what the Holy Spirit does for us. And then last week we looked at the threefold prayer of Paul. Actually, not last week. Last week was Pastor Jim. How was Pastor Jim? Did he rock? All right. He's bald now. He didn't used to be bald, but I hope he listens to that. And... Uh, He's a great guy. I grew up, uh, he was the worship leader of the church I grew up at, and so I've had a relationship with him for a long time. He's actually on the board of this church. Uh, so when you, whenever you pray for our church, you can pray for him as well. He's got a church up in Bertha, I think he told you guys. Um, so Pastor Jim shared last week. But two weeks ago, we talked about the threefold prayer of Paul. This week, we're going to look at a threefold unity that we have as believers. And and the title of the message is Unity in the Body. Um, the church, the church is all God's people. Though all, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as a substitute for their sin and, and everyone who follows him makes up the church, as you guys know. And the church has many buildings 
many signs, many names, many denominations, and many groups. And I love the church so much. I do. I love it. But I have to admit that I am grieved when I consider and I think about how divided it seems to be. And I have this, this thought in my heart, and, I, and I, I'm asking every single one of us to consider this today. Are we prejudiced against other churches that are part of the church? Do we think we're better than them? Well, obviously, we, we do things the way that we do them because we think it's the best. We think, I, I think that teaching the Bible verse by verse is the way to go. Home run, okay? I think you need to do that. Other people think it's not. Other people think the pastor should come up with a message and the Holy Spirit should speak to him every week and they go with that. And other people think you should read things that are hundreds of years old and that's the way you should go. Everyone thinks it's different. But are they a part of the body of Christ? And is the church divided? You know, there's literally thousands of churches in this city. You can drive around all the streets and there's this most precious blood and this Lutheran and this Baptist and this. Uh, there's so many. There's so many. And you drive through and, you, and, and the, the question commonly arises, they can't all be right or, or there's got to be some that are better and, and people use this as an excuse to not go to church. Right? I've heard it many times. They say, well, the church is so dumb because of all the divisions. The church, I'm, I don't believe in the church. In fact, I'm okay with God, but it's his followers that I have a problem with. I'm okay. I mean, I would maybe go to church, but I just can't get over all the division in it. And they, they have this, and, and I wonder if that's inside us. I wonder if we need the Holy Spirit to speak to us today something. Because when we were going door to door yesterday, we would knock on some of the doors and some people would say, I have a church that I'm going to go to. And they would have a smile on their face. And, and I had a conflict. Part of me was like, great, they're going to church. And part of me was like, but it's not my church. Right? And we think somehow that if it's not our church, if it's not our building, somehow they're missing out. Now, they are missing out on fellowship with us, and you guys are pretty much the coolest people to fellowship with, but are they missing out? I want to have the heart of God when it comes to this issue, this issue of division in the church and all the different denominations and all these things. And I pray that we would ask the Spirit to search our hearts today. And this isn't saying that we're going to go join with the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witness, or a church that denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are issues to debate, and there are issues to divide over. There are people that are not in the church who have a building that looks like a church, but they're not in the church because they don't know Jesus. And that's an issue, okay? But there are many issues to debate, that we could debate. That it's okay. And we don't have to divide over, like the color of the carpet, the way that you preach, the way that you teach, the way you sing, the kind of music you play, all these different things. 
And it may be appropriate to have one church that sings one way because people like that way and one church that sings another way because people like that way and one church that raps because people like to rap. And you can have all these different types of music, but they could all be united. And that unity is what we're looking at. I personally wish that we could rap, but I can't rap. So, we'll pray for that. So the big question we have before us is how can we reconcile all the differences in the church around the world? Is the church falling apart and is it failing? And can we do anything to fix these apparent issues? All right? Well, unity in general can be difficult to attain. Just ask uh, this guy, Tom Pagel. There was a, a correction in the Cambridge, Minnesota Star and it said, uh, Insanity County Commissioner Tom Pagel has 100% support from his family, not the 10% that was stated in last week's article on Pagel's announcement to seek re-election. So, I mean, that guy, he's, he's having a hard time finding some unity in his, in his family. I'm sure his campaign didn't get off to a blazing start. So unity can be hard to find, even in a family. Now, check this out. In the church, it can be even harder. Okay, I want to I tell you about, in World War II, Hitler... Hitler commanded that all the religious groups unite so that he could control them, right? Okay? So among the the Brotherhood Assemblies, that was a denomination that was there and it was alive. It was a Bible-teaching, believing church in Germany. Among these Brethren Assemblies, half complied with Hitler and half of them resisted and refused. And those that went along with him had a much easier time during World War II and all that war. And those who did not faced harsh persecution from the Nazis. In almost every family of those who resisted, someone died in a concentration camp. This was real. And when the war was over, bitterness raged between these two groups. It ran deep and, and there was a ton of tension. And as the Brotherhood Assemblies came back together and started to have church again, they found that it was impossible to have unity. Finally, they decided that the situation had to be dealt with, healed, is what they wanted. And it's amazing because the leaders from each of the group, they went up to a quiet retreat up in the mountains and... For several days, each of these leaders spent time in prayer and just seeking, you know, examining their own hearts in the light of Christ's commands and just seeking the Lord, just keeping their eyes on Jesus. And then they came together. And, and Francis Schaeffer is the guy who told, who, was told, who told about this incident in one of his books. And, and he said, um, he asked his friend, he was told about this from a friend that was there. And he said, what did you do then? And he said, you know what? We were just one. As they confessed their hostility and their bitterness to God and yielded to his control, the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among them. And love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred. So what did they do to get this unity? What did they do to unite this church church that was so divided? They just looked at Jesus. They just spent time with him. They engaged with him. Jesus did the healing. Now, did they all come together and have church in the same place? No. They had different church buildings still. But they were one, they said. They had unity. They had love for one another. 
When Jesus is lifted up and love prevails among believers, especially in times of strong disagreement, it it presents to the world an indisputable mark that Jesus Christ is real in this world. And what problem is there, or what difficulty is there that can tear apart the body of Christ? I want you to think about that question. We'll come back to it later. What could tear apart the body of Christ? Well, throughout history, there have been many divisions in the church. So it seems there have been times when the Roman church split with the Alexandrian church, and later with the Eastern Orthodox church, and time after that, there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of splits. But I suggest to you today, that the church, the real church, the group of believers that makes up the body of Christ here on the earth has not ever and will not ever be divided. And that's because they're all in the same place. In Christ. So, let's look at our verse that we're looking at today, which is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And 20, we're going we're gonna to look at a few verses today, but we'll start in verse 19. He says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the, at the right hand in the heavenly places? Last week, we, well, two weeks ago, we looked at those, that threefold prayer and And Paul prayed three things. The last part that we looked at was the power. He prayed that we would understand the power. And here he's now expounding on that power that we have as believers. And Paul prayed that the church would understand this power. And here he says that uh, it's all about Jesus. And and he, he shows Jesus as the illustration of that power. That Jesus, rising from the dead something no amount of power could do in this world to raise someone from the dead, but that power is available to us, and he illustrates it here. And now he's going to shift our, fo- our focus away from the power to where Jesus is. So if Jesus has been raised from the dead, we're now changing our topic, so we, we, we're kind of made a transition from this power that raised him. Now look at where he's been raised to. Where is he at? It says, he is seated. It's this power seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And that term right hand is very interesting because I'll give you three things that it, that it pictures for us. Number one is it pictures authority. That now whatever he says goes. Jesus, because of this power in his life, has been granted authority, the authority of God. You know, he speaks with that authority of the Father standing right behind him. I... I uh, I just picture, you know, someone, I think there was a cartoon and it's, my mind's drawing a blank right now where there was this little kid and he said something and everyone like listened really carefully because behind him was standing the big like dad or the big warrior or something like that. And they weren't necessarily impressed with the kid, but they were impressed with the authority that stood behind him. And that's kind of the situation that Jesus is in now. Jesus still God, but he's at the right hand of the father and has all that authority. Secondly, it speaks of their fellowship. Him being at the right hand of God means he sits close to the Father and communes unbroken with him. You know, what does he talk about with the Father? You know, you've seen the the king and the queen and they they lean over and they're always telling an inside joke or something like that. And I kind of picture that with the Father and Jesus 
And I'm wondering what they talk about. But it's funny because the Bible actually tells us that Jesus is consistently making intercession for us to the Father, which is cool. He's not just talking to him about who's going to win the football game or the weather. He's talking about you. You're the center of his thoughts. And that's awesome. Even when we sin, and he causes the Father to agree, which is amazing. The Father is not like, well, I know you think really high of him, Jesus, but I have a different opinion. No, see, the Father and Jesus are completely united. They always agree. They always agree. So Jesus is making intercession for us. The Father is receiving that intercession. He loves it. And the third thing I would see in this is confidence. That the Father has confidence in Jesus. He is his right-hand man, you would say. Seated at the right hand of the Father, right? It kind of makes sense. He gets things done that need to get done, and the Father trusts him in that. There's some things that need to get done. Right now, Jesus is up in heaven preparing a place for you and me. You know, it took him six days to create this entire universe. And how long has he been working on our home in heaven? Because it says that he's been up in heaven since the day he arose, preparing a place for you and me. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to be impressed, I'm sure. Another thing that needs to get done, that, that he's going to have confidence, is that Jesus is going to judge the world. That judgment that's coming, the Father is committed into his hands, so he has confidence that he's doing that, that he's going to be able to do that. He's doing all these things. He's a busy guy up there in heaven. So that's where Jesus is at. He's sitting right there, just in glory. He's preparing a place for us. He's getting ready to judge. It's a good place. But Paul wants you to really get the point. So he writes verse 21. And he explains this place that Jesus is in. And he says, it's far above, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Think about this verse, if you will, with me, from the perspective of the disciples that walked with him. And the disciples that probably were still alive when this was written. And they, they read this and, you know, Jesus, to them, they knew him as a man. They knew him as, as you know, the guy who laid down all the glory of God and took the form of a lowly man. That's who they knew. And then they saw him raised up. You know, but they were with him when he was happy. They were with him when he was sad. And when he was excited and when he was tired, they saw all the normalness of him. They saw that he was a regular dude, except for the whole also being God at the same time and healing people and walking on water and breaking all the laws of the universe just because he could stuff. It's normal except for that. But now Jesus has all that glory back. He's the greatest of the great and the king of kings and lord of lords and nothing in this universe or in any other universe, he says, or any age that's to come, will even begin to approach the brightness of his glory. There is no threat or challenge to his authority or greatness and there never will be. And that's the way things are right now for Jesus. That's where he's abiding. That's where he's living. Well, that's great. Everything is awesome with Jesus. Things are just peachy where he's at. 
But what does this all have to do with us and the church and our relationships with the churches and other buildings and other denominations and other believers? Well, let's look at verse 22. It says here that he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, this exalted Jesus, this, this rockin' Jesus, this, this Jesus that's glorified and up in heaven and full of glory and happy and an authority, everything that he could desire, that Jesus, it says here, is given to be the head of the church. That means God chose to give a gift to the church. And that gift is that those who trust in him would have a head called Jesus. And in giving this gift, Jesus is unashamedly and irrevocably connecting himself with the church. He would be just fine without us. He would be a full, complete being, head and body. But he chooses, in some irrational moment of insanity, probably, to connect himself with you and say, I'll just be the head, and I want you guys to be the body. All of you believers. You know, he honored God with the body that he had before. He even gave it as a sacrifice for the world's sin. And when he ascended up into heaven, you know, then he ascended up to heaven with his glorified body. But he left his spirit as a gift to us so he could be connected bodily with us. Because as the spirit indwells you, and as you go throughout Denver or whatever city that you're in, you're taking Jesus with you to all these places. Every single believer that is not filled with the Spirit of Jesus is not actually a believer. That connection with him is what causes us to be part of his body. So the church, the church, all these believers are his body, and it says they are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Trapp says, That is, of Christ, who, having voluntarily subjected himself to be our head, accounts not himself complete without his members, in which respect we have the honor of making Christ perfect or complete, as the members do the body. If someone's walking around without a leg, they don't have a complete body. And the same thing with Jesus and his church. Which means that the church is the vessel that he is using to do anything he wants to do in the world. That's why I love the church. I believe in the church. We truly are his hands and feet here on the earth. Now, many times in history, people have tried to have a different head for the church. Sometimes they put that role into a man. And the man had to try to fill this role of being the head of the church, which he was not intended to do. Sometimes a group of men, sometimes it was a list of rules. 
that was intended to be the head. Well, that doesn't make a very compassionate head. Sometimes it was just a name, or sometimes it was a geographical region that was attempted to be made the head. But the church, the true church, only can be led by Jesus. We can only think straight if our heart is connected with his mind. We can only think straight if our heart is connected with him. And this way, this is the way that unity is destroyed in the church. All around the world, all around this city, it's when people choose to walk around headless. Doesn't work. Or they get their direction and inspiration from something other than Jesus Christ himself. When they get it from a pastor who's saying, this is what you should believe and this is what will make you whole. Come to church and listen to my sermons because they're so life-bringing. It does not true. The only thing that's bringing life in this place is Jesus Christ. Only his spirit. And you have to be careful. I have to be careful that I don't think that this church is here because of me. And pastors, it's so, it, it can be such a temptation. It can be so dangerous when people say, that was a great sermon. I'm coming to the Lord because of you. And the pastor can say, yeah, it was because of me. But I'm lucky I have my wife who can set me straight. Thank you, sweetie. <laughs> we commonly have discussions, and she's like, well, it's, it's fine if you're not there because this situation that you don't have to be there because Jesus will be there, right? And I have to say, yes, you're right. Yes, she is right. It is about Jesus. And you guys would be fine if I died. The Lord would raise up a shepherd. Maybe from among you, maybe from outside, but you guys are part of his body and he would not leave you. You guys would probably be better off. <laughs> but let's, let's hope that that doesn't happen. <laughs> But unity, man, it gets destroyed when people walk around this way. Anything you do, see, if we're connected with Jesus, anything you do, you should be able to say, I'm doing this because Jesus told me to do it. That's the legacy of the church. Why are you going to work? Why are you at home? When you, why do you come home? Why do you eat breakfast in the morning? We can have this as our inspiration because Jesus told me to. Jesus told me to take care of his temple, so I'm going to eat breakfast and take care of myself. Jesus told me to work hard and work eyes unto him, so I'm going to work hard. All these different things that we do, we have, to, we have to unify it all under the headship of Jesus. Let Jesus be the boss that he is. I like Lecrae's, speaking of rap again, Lecrae has this rap and he says, some call it sovereign, sovereign will. All I know is you're the boss. I like that. It says you dub boss, but it works. So the question, here's the question. Why does this work? Why do we have such confidence? How can each and every member of the church be equal members and have equal access to God's blessing and know his will? And the answer is, we are united with him. And what we're learning today is we're united with him in three ways. It's the threefold unity of the church. Last week it was that threefold prayer. 
of Paul. This week, it's the threefold unity of the church. So number one way that we are all united in a way that we couldn't do ourselves is that we're made alive together. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So it says, we were all dead, but we have been made alive. We were exactly like Jesus in this way, and we have been united to him in this way. For he was dead, and he has been, and now lives, and so do we. David Guzak says of being dead, this touches on one of the most controversial areas of theology. In what manner and to what extent is a person dead before conversion? Must a person be converted before they can believe, or can there be a prior work of God to instill faith that is still short of conversion? It's pretty complex. Those who argue that a man must be generated before he can believe like to say that a dead man cannot believe. This takes this particular description further than intended, however. To say that unredeemed man is exactly like a dead man because a dead man also cannot sin. If you're dead, you're not sinning. So, we err if we think that a dead man in trespass, a dead, that, that phrase, dead in trespasses and sins, says everything about a lost man's condition. It is an error because the Bible uses many different pictures to describe the state of an unsaved man. I'll give you a few. It says he's blind. Can a dead man be blind? Not really, because he couldn't see. He's a slave to sin. He's a lover of darkness. He's described as sick. Lost, an alien, a stranger, a foreigner, a child of wrath, and under the power of darkness. All those are scriptural, biblical descriptions of someone who's not a believer. So, when it says dead and trespass and sins, make sure that we understand what it's talking about. Okay? But it is from this dismissal existence that we dis, excuse me is from this dismal existence that we were saved from. All those descriptions they once described us, but as believers, as the church, we've been saved from that. We've been raised up and united with Jesus Christ. And this life is described as this this previous life is described as according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the in the sons of disobedience. So Satan had us dead to rights. He had us. He had us dead. He had every right to our souls, and his intention was only to steal, steal kill, and destroy us. But Jesus didn't let that happen, did he? And it's the same for every man. For Paul says, we all, once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So he says, we all had no hope. 
We were completely separated from God. We were so familiar with the, only the resources that we had available to us before Christ. Just trying hard, just drowning in our own sin. Whatever we could muster up, and it never worked. So each one of us gave in to our flesh, he says. And we all became slaves of sin because that was just our nature. We were naturally just these slaves of sin. But now come the two most powerful words you can ever read. After that dismal description of who we were, it says, but God. I love it. Yes, we were in a pretty bad spot, but God. In fact, we were left for dead, but God. We had no friends, no resources that could bring us life, but God. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespass and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. For it's by grace that you have been saved. No person has ever deserved to be saved. Only those who confess they can't do it are saved. Only those who will trust in his grace, his free gift of righteousness and mercy, they are made alive together with Christ, just as breath entered Jesus' lungs and he lived in the tomb. So his breath by his spirit comes into our hearts and we live. And all members of the church are made alive together. It's what we have in common. It's, it's something we have in common. So as we drive by the, the church of the brethren, of the tabernacle, of whatever, and we don't get their name, and we don't get why they do what they do, but we can know that they have been made alive like we were, that they were dead and they're alive, and it, it has a unifying effect in our hearts. Number two. Number one is that we're made alive together. Number two is that we're raised up together. And I'm going to give you number three right now, too. We're made to sit together. Notice the word together is in the scripture three times in this section. These three truths that are given to us in Ephesians. Raised together, made to sit together. Look at verse six. He raised us up together. And he made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So let's look at that. He raised us up. Number one, there is no mountain to climb. There is no work to be done. There's no magic prayers to say or good deeds to be done. There's only a helping hand reaching down, pulling us up out of the pit that we were in when we first believed. And all members of the church are being raised. They've been raised and they're being raised. We all have that in common too. They used to be down here, but now they're growing in Christ. And they're growing in righteousness. And they're being sanctified. And it's happening to each person as the Lord wills. As he's working. Our lives used to be in a graveyard, but now they're full of life as we abide in Christ. Secondly, or actually this is the third point, that he made us sit together. We don't sit in the heavenly places with Christ, at least not yet. Instead, we sit in the heavenly places. Sorry, I, I messed that up. We don't sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus right now. We're not with him 
in that way. Instead, we sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's that our life and our identity are in Christ, and he sits in the heavenly places, and so, and so, so do we. No one has to be strive to do a better job at sitting. Is anyone trying harder to sit better right now? You're all sitting, and you're doing a fine job, I might say. Some of you look like you're doing better than others, but no one's really trying harder to sit. Sitting, by its definition, is a restful occupation. And so, unity in the church is found not as we're trying to get it, but when we cease from our striving and just sit down with Christ. Sit down in Christ. So we go back to our question, so how can we reconcile all the differences in the church around the world? Is the church failing? Can, it, can we do anything to fix these issues? Well, unity in the church is not found from following one man or a system of interpretation or name, but unity in the church is found in every church having the same, or being in the same place. Not having the same name. We don't all have to have the same name. We, can't, we don't all have to be called this church or that church. Unity is found in these three graces that have already been given to us. Number one, that he made us alive. Number two, that he raised us up. And number three, that he, we, he made us sit with him. Notice that none of these things are things that White Flag Calvary can do. Coming to church doesn't give you this grace or these graces. None of these things can be earned. You can't work harder to bring the people of God together. We can't do anything to bring more unity than we already have in Christ. Nope. Each of these graces are given to individuals who humbly abide in Christ. So is Jesus concerned with the apparent divisions of groups of believers around the world? Is he upset about all these denominations? Because I have been going along in my life thinking, yeah, he's upset about it. And you know what? It's common in the church world today to put down the church. It's common for people to say, man, all the, the church is so messed up. You ever hear that? The church is so full of duh, and they fill in the blank. They just put all these things. And through this study, it's begun, to, it's begun to grieve my heart that my heart has been that way. Because the church, and from Jesus' perspective, is just fine. Where are they? They're with him. Where is he at? He's in heaven, doing just great. All authority. He's awesome. And the church is with him. And he's raising us up, and he's sanctifying. He's doing all these things. And I have this attitude that he's really failing. My problem is really with Jesus. If I have a problem with his church, it's because I'm telling him, would you hurry up and fix these people? And he says, I'm, I'm patient. I'm working in their life. I'm teaching them to trust, just like I taught you to trust. And it didn't happen overnight for you, did it? No. And it's a heart of not love. It's a heart of, of self-righteousness that puts us above other believers. And I'm convicted by it. And I want to change. See, I would say, as Jesus looks around, is he concerned? 
No, I think he's looking around. He sees where he's sitting in heaven, raised from the dead, alive forevermore. He sees you and I within his heart, partaking of his glory and his grace, his very life flowing in and through us, and he's not too concerned about it at all. You see, he's always victorious. He always is at peace. He always is loving and patient with the failings and struggles of his body. And he's not up there cutting off parts of his body, lopping off legs and limbs because they didn't choose the right color of carpet. Or they had a different way of interpreting his word. Or they chose to submit to a dictator or resist a dictator. See, I believe that Jesus is all in all, like the scripture said. And that as his people look to him, unity and love is a byproduct of the salvation that we all enjoy in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No matter how deep the wounds may cut, he will lovingly care for his body. For we are not children of wrath, but sons and daughters of the Most High God who loves us. That's it. The church is in Christ and Jesus is doing just fine. So is it okay that we have all these denominations? Well, I don't know that it's the best, but I think it's okay. Maybe we could all come together and through love establish a new way to do things. But I know it's not from us trying. It's not going to happen with us saying, you guys got to come be like us. It happens from us being devastated and broken by our own hearts and our closets and weeping to have God change our hearts. That's how we can achieve change in the church. And maybe the divisions in the church and all the denominations are just an outward sign of how selfish his people are in our country. Maybe. And I pray that that changes with us. I pray that we are the ones who love so deeply and understand this threefold unity that the Bible just gave us. I didn't make it up. This was our next chapter. This was our next verse that we were in. And this unity is, is what the Lord has for us right now. So, let's pray. Let's sing a song. And get excited about passing out those Easter flyers. Because we love Pastor Sean. We have unity with Pastor Sean. We want him to get some sleep this week. (laughs) Well, Jesus, our hearts are repentant because of how we can so easily think of ourselves as being more important than you, more important than other believers. And Lord, we ask for um, a fresh heart. We ask for your Holy Spirit to change us. God, it's a, uh, it's a humbling thing to be so exalted with you and, and to be your body. And Lord, we're sorry for causing division within our, within our own church. 
Lord God, every believer who's praying right now and all the believers in this city who are gathered in the different church buildings, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, you said in Joel, in the last days you would pour out your Spirit upon, upon many and they would prophesy. And, and Lord, we, we desire to see that in our city. And Lord, we desire for many people to come to be believers, that you would raise up many, give them life who were dead, Lord God. And Lord, we do practically pray for these invitations, Lord God. We pray over them and ask that you would use these simple invitations and simple kind words from us, inviting people to church, Lord God, to renew and restore them for eternity. Lord, use these small and meager things that we offer. Jesus, we love you. We exalt you above measure, God. There is no way we could stop praising you or stop seeking you out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.